ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week, it's a best of ETF Prime. It's been an absolutely amazing year on the podcast. I feel so fortunate to be joined by such an extraordinary lineup of guests each week. And obviously, the financial markets and ETF industry have given us no shortage of interesting topics this year, to say the least. I've just had so much fun. And I really hope you've enjoyed listening as well. I truly appreciate everyone supporting this podcast. So thank you. And I think you'll enjoy what I've put together this week. I have snippets from seven conversations this year. And what I've done is the first half of this is much more market-driven discussion. Meme stocks, crypto, inflation, really covering some of the wacky things we've seen out of the markets this year. And then the second half, I'll pivot to some of the biggest ETF stories in 2021. So I think you'll get a nice mix here. And I want to start with a conversation I had with research affiliates Rob Arnott back in early February. This is right after the uh, meme stock phenomenon went mainstream with GameStop. And to the surprise of many investors, this hasn't died down. This is still going strong 10, 11 months later. And I've got to say, Rob called it. Let's start with the markets right now, which I'm not even quite sure where to begin on all this. Uh, so look, last week we saw stocks like GameStop and AMC, Tootsie Roll, Blockbuster, stocks that looked completely left for dead. They skyrocketed, in some cases, several hundred percent in, in a day or two. And there appeared to be this coordinated effort by retail investors to target stocks with high short interest. What did you make of all this as you watched it unfold? Well, it's classic bubble behavior. And um, <clears throat> bubbles burst, but they can be uh, 
firstly, they can be exciting to watch, and secondly, they can go far further and last much longer than any skeptic would uh, uh, dare predict. Um, we saw that with GameStop. Uh, it started last year at barely $4 a share, and it peaked last week at well over $400 a share. A hundred-fold rise, that's, um, that's pretty extreme. When you talk about bubbles, if I look at the market environment overall right now and in, in some of the headlines out there, there are a lot of comparisons being made to the late 1990s and the dot-com bubble. Whether you want to talk about what we saw last week or we can point to Tesla, uh, some of these tech companies that have no earnings, uh, SPACs, it was a record month for SPACs in January, uh, Bitcoin, wh whatever you want to point to. And I know the 90s bubble was sort of the genesis of your work around fundamental indexing, which we're going to talk about. But wh what do you think of these comparisons between now and the late 1990s? Oh, I think they're spot on. This, look, this environment looks very, very much like uh, the uh, bubble of 2000. It's, it's not even like uh, a year before the bubble burst. It's, it's right at early 2000 in terms of market behavior. We, we actually defined the term bubble a couple of years ago in a way that can be used in real time, which is important because most people use the word long after the fact, saying, oh, that was a bubble. Um, our definition is really simple. If you're using a discounted cash flow model or a, some other simple valuation model, you would have to make implausible assumptions to justify today's price. And second part of the definition, just as important, the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models. Okay. What assumptions would you have to make to justify GameStop at 400? Pretty implausible. Does the marginal buyer today care? No, it's either a short covering their shorts or it's a, a retail speculator speculating on short sellers covering their shorts. When you look at the markets right now in, in current valuations, what do you think are some of the drivers or what have been some of the key drivers to get to this point, wh whether it be the Fed, government stimulus, uh, or, or other factors? Well, stimulus is a big part of it. I mean, the stimulus checks went to a lot of people who urgently needed money to make ends meet um, during a crisis in which they weren't earning any money um, uh, and a crisis not of their own making. But it, the checks also went to a lot of people who didn't need the money. And if you don't need the money and sports betting is out the window, uh, what are you going to do? Um, uh, go down to Robin Hood and place your bets. So it's um, uh, the stimulus is a big part of this speculative bubble that's happening right now. And, of course, another part of it is narratives that um, um, this company or that company can do no wrong and, and can accomplish anything. I've heard folks talk about how Tesla is perfectly positioned to take over Google's business, Apple's business, and Facebook's business. What? <laughs> they have no expertise in those areas. Well, let me ask you this. How do you think this all ends? And I, I know you're not big into predictions, but if I look right now, I'm seeing all the usual comments out there that uh, this won't end well, uh, this will end in tears, uh, we, we've seen this movie before. What do you think happens? Well, I think it will end in tears for a lot of people. Um, uh, bubbles do that. But, um, uh, again, you want to be very careful about betting against it. 
the people who shorted GameStop when it was $20 a share or $10 a share wound up losing um, 20, 40 times their money and having to make margin calls uh, uh, that were multiples of their sale price on the stock. And so you have to be very careful about betting against bubbles. Uh, I, I just prefer to bet against bubbles by not owning them because you don't know when they're going to roll over, but you know that in almost all cases they do. Uh, Tesla is a beautiful example of that. We went through the exercise of using a discounted cash flow model and asking what assumptions would we have to make. We assumed 50% growth in revenues per year for the next 10 years. Now, that's 55-fold growth. That's uh, five times the growth that Amazon achieved in the last 10 years. Uh, and Amazon is a picture postcard perfect example of uh, a growth company doing everything right. And uh, if you then assume that the company has a 10% uh, net, net of taxes profit margin, which is higher than any auto company has had in the last decade, now you're talking about a set of assumptions that would justify a price of about 400, not 800. And so uh, you have to make implausible assumptions. Now, does the marginal buyer of Tesla care about discounted cash flow models? No. They're buying into the narrative of uh, Elon Musk um, turns everything he touches into gold. So that was a portion of my conversation with Rob Arnott, founding chairman of Research Affiliates. And you heard him say that investors should be very careful betting against bubbles. That's proven correct this year. A lot of stocks and other areas of the market, crypto, areas people have pointed to as bubbles, have continued to run. And Rob said these can go far further and last much longer than any skeptic would dare predict. So he prefers just not owning bubbles altogether, which gets into his fundamental indexing approach, which we actually went on to discuss. But really enjoyed that. And it's the perfect segue to my next conversation. I was joined by none other than Burton Malkiel, another investing legend, founding father of Passive Investing, author of one of my favorite books, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And he picks up on this discussion around meme stocks and stock valuations, even crypto. This was a true pleasure. And I start here by asking Burton how he reconciles these wild swings in meme stocks with the efficient market hypothesis. Burton, on the topic of uh, price discovery, l l let's pivot here and talk about these meme stocks. So uh, stocks like GameStop and, and AMC and some of the other ones out there that have been swarmed by retail investors. And one of the things that I have seen mentioned is that these price moves uh, seem to fly in the face of the efficient market hypothesis, which, of course, you, you've championed. And I'm curious, how do you reconcile the moves in a stock like GameStop with the efficient market theory? And perhaps if you want, you can talk more about, you know, exactly what this theory means to you in general. But, but how do you yeah, reconcile yeah, well, that? Well, the, the point is uh, the efficient market theory for me means that information gets quickly recorded into uh, prices, that there is uh, that price discovery. It does not mean that the price is always right. In fact, uh, my own view is the price is always wrong. What the efficient market uh, hypothesis says is uh, the price may be always wrong, but nobody knows whether it's too high 
uh, or uh, too low, and therefore there are no arbitrage opportunities. There are no obvious opportunities uh, for gains. Uh, so it doesn't mean the price is always right. And given the meme stocks, uh, there's no question that the price is always wrong. Uh, there's no doubt that the game stock price uh, uh, was uh, uh, wrong at $2 and it was wrong at $400. Uh, and uh, a lot of hedge funds who bet against it uh, uh, really uh, 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 got themselves uh, in an enormous amount of uh, trouble. So uh, what... Uh, there can be craziness in the market. I mean, in my book, I spent three chapters on bubbles in the market, and uh, the meme stocks uh, are certainly uh, an example of that. I think what we got that started during the pandemic is people didn't have uh, sports teams. They didn't have live sports to gamble on. Uh, and uh, they had a lot of time on their hands, and they're at home in front of the computer. Uh, and so you started to have uh, a gambling pandemic that uh, went into the stock market because that was the place where prices changed all the time, uh, and uh, you could do your gambling. And I think with the uh, uh, the meme stocks with GameStop, with AMC, uh, with the Reddit mob, uh, uh, you uh, have uh, found uh, that this and, and uh, the, the ascension of Robinhood, uh, uh, where they uh, have actually got their site uh, set up so that it looks like a gambling site, uh, uh, there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of crazy pricing. Uh, but again, uh, with uh, GameStop and AMC right now, does that mean that, uh, boy, I know better than the market and uh, I will short these? The people who've shorted them uh, uh, got themselves uh, in an enormous amount of trouble. And let me just say one other thing that I haven't seen much said about uh, uh, in um, the, the discussion of the meme stocks. Uh, uh, obviously, I think it's crazy, but the funny part of it and almost the paradoxical part of it is, take AMC, which uh, borrowed heavily uh, during the pandemic when nobody was going to the theaters and uh, uh, it looked like they were sure to go into bankruptcy. But what happened was, with the meme stock craze, they were actually able to raise money. And it's a real paradox uh, if that company actually gets saved because they were able to raise enough money because of the meme stock craze to then pay off their debt and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, live to fight again. So, the, as I say, there is a real... Uh, economic effect from this, uh, and uh, uh, it will be very interesting to see whether it uh, plays out. Uh, GameStop uh, trying to sell games on discs when it's all done uh, over the net now, uh, maybe it will reinvent itself. But uh, uh, the whole thing uh, is uh, just a... Uh, 
as far as I'm concerned, a gambling pandemic. And what is very likely to happen is there will be some winners. Uh, but what we know about day traders, what we know about people who do this, that most of them, uh, most of them are going to lose. And uh, it's very dangerous. I like the idea of democratizing investment, but I think that uh, if this is the way you get into the market and you lose your shirt, uh, 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 this isn't good for the long run. Uh, this is not my idea of how markets should be democratized. Well, do you worry at all that uh, younger investors in particular, I think especially ones who got involved in the markets, let's say over the past year and a half or so, do you worry that perhaps their perception of investing might be skewed now, that they may not accept, you know, the, the quote unquote average returns of index funds, right? Because they've seen these huge uh, returns in meme stocks and Bitcoin and, and so forth. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, uh, that could, in fact, in the long run, uh, sour them uh, from uh, investing. Now, look, you know, I've got no objection to gambling. I like to gamble myself. Uh, I like to go to the horse races. But I know perfectly well that if I bet on every horse in the race, I'm going to lose 20 percent of my money because the track takes 20% off for running the track for uh, taxes uh, uh, and uh, other uh, expenses. So uh, in some sense, the stock market is a better place to gamble because there's no 20% uh, uh, tax uh, uh, and uh, expense take from it. So I think... Uh, uh, you know, it's a better way to gamble, but there's no doubt in my mind that in the long run, the people who do this, even the people who've made some money at the beginning, eventually they will lose. And uh, uh, this is, uh, I do worry a lot that this could sour them from uh, investing uh, uh, in the uh, in the long run. I mean, again, my answer to these people would be, uh, you want to do this, you want to have fun, it's probably better than the lottery. It's better than going to the horse races. Uh, you know, the odds are a little better in your favor than going to uh, a casino and playing the roulette wheel. Uh, this is a better uh, bet for you. But for heaven's sakes, it's not investing. Uh, do something like we do in Wealthfront. Have a diversified portfolio of index funds for the long haul. And then around the edges, just as I say with the ESG investing, uh, you want to do some gambling around the edges, that's fine. But it's not investing, and it's not the way that you should prepare for your retirement. So that was a portion of my conversation with Burton Malkiel, and I loved how fired up he was there, which, by the way, if you miss that full interview, you have to go back and listen to his comments on ESG. He, he did not hold back there. Uh, but look, I, I do think it's interesting to consider how the pandemic has changed the financial markets. Burton mentioned no sports gambling. We had commission-free trading proliferate. 
Platforms like Robinhood, government stimulus checks, which Rob Arnott mentioned earlier, Dave Portnoy, Reddit, social media, all of these seem to conspire over the past two years to create what Burton now calls a gambling pandemic, which I think is interesting to consider unless you think this is just the new normal for the markets, which I can't rule that out either. In any event, let me play one more sort of related snippet. This is from Thomas Petterfee, founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers. One of the things that's come under the microscope during this quote unquote gambling pandemic is the practice of payment for order flow where brokerages receive kickbacks from market makers who are paying brokerages to execute retail trade orders and the market makers pocket the spread. But this has magnified the discussion around whether apps like Robinhood have a financial incentive to get people to trade more, which obviously that can be detrimental. And here's Thomas discussing just that. I, I loved his long pause to my first question, by the way. In your opinion, is the practice of payment for order flow good or bad for investors? Well, <laughs> it depends <laughs> on how you look at it. So uh, compared to executing the order right on the MBBO, the customer saves a tiny bit because, as I said, the the high-frequency trader or market maker will give a slightly better price uh, for the order. Uh, but the fact is that there are even better prices uh, at which uh, and, and other places at better prices where orders can be executed. There are so-called dark pools where prices are not shown where orders can be executed relative to the NDBO. For example, we at IBKR have a dark pool where we get institutional orders. We explain to the institutions that, look, we have all these retail order flow coming in. Why don't you put your buy and sell orders into our dark pool relative to whatever the NDBO happens to be, and we will just execute against you so we we are this with these kinds of arrangements we achieve a situation where the retail order is executed against the institute institutional order at, at right at the middle of the mbbo so both sides benefit uh so yeah relative to that it is not good for a, a payment for order flow is not good for a for a, um, for a customer. Is there any way to quantify the cost here? Because not to pick on Robinhood, but I went to their website yesterday and they show that over 95% of their orders are executed at the national best bid and offer or better. And for every 100 shares traded, uh, they state that they save customers $1.09 on average. And if investors see data like this, you know, that looks pretty good. That doesn't seem like a problem. H how do we gauge the true cost or impact here? So, so as, as I said, so if if, a, if Robinhood gets a dollar, Robinhood gets uh, a, a high payment because their orders are really uh, very, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> not not very smart. So. Uh, 
I would think that the average customer of Robinhood loses four dollars on an execution, and the and the uh, Robinhood gets uh, one dollar and nine cents of that four dollars. What about from an investor behavior perspective? Do you think the practice of payment for order flow ultimately encourages more trading, which then that could be detrimental to investors? So, well, I mean, you know, all, and any business is, is motivated to encourage uh, uh, customers to to do more, right? So, so we all want to sell more or uh, uh, goods and services. So, of course, brokers want to encourage uh, their customers to trade more. Uh, let, let me ask well, you. On, on the, go yeah, ahead. Okay, no, go no, ahead. Go, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, on the long run, uh, I would think that uh, I, I would... Um, I would think that frequent trading is, is is not very good unless somebody is, that's what they do for a living and really know how to do it. That was Thomas Petterfee, founder and chairman of Interactive Brokers. And if you're interested in the back-end plumbing of order flow and why exactly market makers pay for it, I definitely encourage you to listen to that entire conversation. Thomas breaks it all down, and he also talks about Interactive Brokers' business model, which I found interesting as well. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the Industrial Revolution and the speed of the Digital Revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. All right, one more market-related conversation before we get into ETFs. This is Harley Bassman, a.k.a. the Convexity Maven, also managing partner of Simplify ETFs. We haven't just seen wacky things in the stock market this year. I think another big theme has been the debate around the death of the 60-40 portfolio, the death of the 40 portion, the bond portion, and what's been going on with interest rates and certainly now uh, with inflation. Harley delves into all of this and also the role of the Fed, which I think if we're talking meme stocks or crypto or obviously bonds, it's hard not to draw a line directly back to how the Fed's operated over the past two years for sure, probably even going back further. Take a listen. But I want to start with what I think is one of the biggest topics of debate right now. And I also think this will help uh, sort of frame our discussion just with some other topics. But but that's inflation. And I'm going to put you right on the spot right off the bat here. Do you think what we're seeing right now is uh, transitory or do you think it's something more sinister? I'm not sure I'd call it sinister, seeing it, it is the master plan of the Fed to create inflation. We have a debt crisis. We had too much debt. We've had too much debt for over a decade now. And the way you get out of debt is you default or you inflate. You can grow also, but that's not likely under current circumstances. And therefore, inflation is the master plan. Uh, what's been unfortunate is QE1 and the other earlier plans that we've gone through has indeed created inflation. The people who say it didn't work, it's just, that's just bogus. It has worked. It's just the inflation has been in assets, um, cars, 
houses, stocks, bonds, gold, art, everything's gone up. Um, what has not gone up is wages. That was the plan, and, and hopefully that will work this time. But strictly back to your question in general, yes, I do believe this is not transitory inflation, and, and that we will have inflation coming down the road. Um, it's not going to be 10% inflation all of the 70s, but can it be 3 4 for quite a while? Yeah, sure. My understanding in reading some of your work is that you believe the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is a uh, manufactured number, that it's not a good gauge of inflation. Do you want to expand on that? Because I feel like that's something that a lot of investors hear, but sometimes the details are a bit lacking. So what's the issue with CPI? Um, well, I, I, I'd use bogus as opposed to manufactured, but <laughs> yeah. But the reason why, look, CPI is a reasonable measure for a long-term history of, of stuff. So I can't argue and say, say it's, we should toss out the window. But there are some problems. You have hedonics, which basically measure the quality changing uh, of, of, of various inputs. So computers are, are better now, so in theory they're cheaper. Well, you still got to pay more dollars for a computer now than you did before. Um, there's a substitution effect saying you're going to go switch out of beef to chicken as prices move around. And then, of course, there's housing, which is the biggest component which is not done by house prices, which I'm not sure is right anyways, but it's done by what's called owner's equivalent rent, uh, where they ask people, what would your house rent for if you were going to rent it? Jeez, man, that's a, that's a tough, tough question to answer. I'm not sure what my house would rent for. And so all these things kind of uh, make it difficult to figure it out. Um, but there is what's interesting is if you look back historically, there was a large change in the calculation of CPI done in the late 90s, and I believe, and the government has a vested interest in keeping CPI low since so many government benefits uh, price off of inflation, CPI. Harley, obviously this topic of inflation is heavily intertwined with the Fed and Fed policy. Let, let me ask you this. How dependent do you think financial markets are on the Fed right now? And you can split out stocks and bonds separately if you want or, or keep them together. But obviously, one of the, the biggest prevailing narratives out there is the Fed is driving everything right now. Do you think it's that simple or is there more to it? Because I think this could ultimately play into how the Fed handles inflation. Um, there's two different components. One is the Fed and monetary policy and fiscal policy also. And the other is demographics. Let's hit on the, on, on, on the Fed first. Um, my, I, I publish uh, a free commentary. Uh, it's on uh, connectthemaven.com. You can find it there. You can send me an email. I'll add you to my list. I publish once every, let's say, six weeks. And then one, one of my more recent ones, I, I show a chart there of uh, money expansion in the four largest economies uh, and the total value of stocks and bonds. And it's basically a stair step straight up. We have had massive inflation in assets. The money being created has to go somewhere. It's gone into assets. As a public policy concept, this is really bad. It's created income disparity, which leads to you know, difficult politics. But that's what the Fed has done. They've also, by controlling volatility, the yield curve and other aspects, they've reduced people's you know, worries to think of as a Fed put, and thus they've increased moral hazard. Um, this is what happened in 04, 05, 06, when the Fed said we're going to take rates up at a measured pace of 25 basis points every six weeks, and thus people get over-levered. This is my concern right now, is that the Fed and other central banks have engineered um, rising asset prices 
And if they pull away, it's unclear what will happen. Uh, likely not good, um, but uh, whatever it is, um, I believe they've added a negatively convex profile to the financial markets. That was Harley Bassman, managing partner of Simplify ETFs. And I think it's pretty clear there. Harley believes the Fed has been a big driver behind rising asset prices, which I think many people would agree with that. And I think without question, when we look back years from now on what's happened with meme stocks and crypto and everything else, the Fed will be right in the middle of the recap, right? They'll play a starring role. Okay, let's now move on to a few ETF-related conversations. There have been several big stories in ETFs this year. And perhaps one of the biggest has been mutual fund to ETF conversions. I would say highlighted by DFA converting some $30 billion in mutual funds to ETFs. But I was actually joined by the person behind the first ever mutual fund to ETF conversion, Jim Atkinson, CEO of Guinness Atkinson. And I just thought he did an excellent job explaining why he pursued this, the mechanics behind the conversion, and ultimately what this means for the industry. We have a nice little family of open and mutual funds. So, so why did I decide that we needed to get into the ETF space? Uh, anybody looking at the flows into ETFs and mutual funds can see what's been happening pretty persistently over the last 10, 20 years. And that is people are leaving open-end funds and, and taking that money and putting into ETFs. And why are they doing that? It's a simple reason. They're voting with their feet because ETFs are a better uh, product. Um, and I'm sitting here looking at the data, and I know we've got a nice little range of mutual funds. And I'm thinking, you know, having a great mutual fund anymore isn't sufficient. We need, we need to be in the ETF space. So, so we started by launching our first ETF uh, in the Smart ETFs line back in uh, November of 2019, our Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, which is an EV, AV fund. Uh, and, and that got our toe in the water. And then late last year, we launched two more funds. We launched our uh, Sustainable Energy ETF, uh, and then we launched our um, Advertising and Marketing Technology ETF, symbol MRAD, which we, we refer to him as Mr. Ad. Uh, and then all the while, we're working on these two conversions. And my view was pretty simple. Um, I started uh, was thinking if we don't convert our mutual funds to ETFs, our shareholders are going to do that for us. And meaning they're going to leave us and go to somebody else's ETF. And, and that just did not seem like a good – doing nothing seemed like a very bad business idea. All right, so let's talk about some of the mechanics of the conversions themselves. And I, I thought the best way to do this is I'll just hand this over to you. I'm going to let you do all of the heavy lifting here. So take us from beginning to end, just just at a very high level. I mean, how did this process work? What were some of the, the checkpoints or milestones? And, and then I'm sure I'll have some follow-up questions from there. Sure, sure. So – we started talking to this about this internally well over two years ago, maybe as far back as three plus years ago. Um, and I, the process started with me sort of coming to the conclusion in my mind that, that we needed to do this. And then it took a while for me to sort of get my colleagues on board. Um, and, and that's because most of my colleagues are in London and they, and they see the world differently than we see it here. Uh, and they, they didn't quite get what was going on in, in the U.S. marketplace. But once I showed them the numbers, they were 100% on board. Had conversations with um, our attorney. Uh, and we actually did some research for about, uh, I'm going to say, six months plus. Uh, you know, 
legal research and, and some operational research, et cetera. And we'll talk about some of those things in a minute. But we sort of formally kicked the process off with a phone call to the Securities and Exchange Commission. And uh, I had no idea what they were going to say. We didn't know if they'd be receptive to it. Um, but as it turns out, um, notwithstanding the fact that we'd done a lot of research, they had done a lot of research on this point as well. So when we got our first phone call with them, they had questions that we hadn't even thought of. Um, but our general view after that phone call was that uh, if we can find a path to do this, uh, they're not going to stand in our way. And in fact, I, I got the impression they were somewhat supportive of it. And, I, and my view is, and this is my opinion, I don't want to speak for them, but that they recognize what we recognize, that, that the ETF is a better mousetrap for investors and investors prefer them. So, so, so they had asked us some questions in that first phone call. So we go back and we, we do a bunch of research um, and we come back to them and have a second phone call. And then this process continued over a number of months. We had uh, phone call questions, phone call questions that we had to go research and answer. And um, we finally um, sort of formally kicked the process off by filing some paperwork with the SEC which started with a registration statement for the two funds as though they were ETFs, because you got to have a registration statement, a prospectus, et cetera. Um, and then we had further discussions with them, and we formally filed what's known as a, an N14, sort of an information statement. And that needs to go to shareholders. But that took a long time to get uh, through the re re review process. Um, and once we got that through the review process, we were able to send that to shareholders and um, – and then start the actual process of getting it done. In the meantime, we're dealing with a whole series of operational issues in the background. And um, I, I, I've said on a number of occasions, this is the biggest project I've ever undertaken in my career. And, and it's because there's so many details that, that touch every single aspect of our business. So we have these phone calls once a week, starting about six plus months before the conversion, that involved operational people at like five or six different firms. And these phone calls would have 30 or 40 people on them. And we'd be going through just the most minute details um, that are going to be involved in this conversion. But, but you know, you, you don't want to hear about that. So from a high level, I'll just say what you, you asked what some of the issues were that we had to deal with. The biggest one we had to sort out is what do we do with our direct shareholders? So most investors nowadays purchase their shares through a broker-dealer, you know, they go to Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, et cetera, and, and they buy their mutual funds or their ETFs. Um, but there are still shareholders, particularly in these funds go back, one of them goes back 12 years and one of them goes back nine years. Um, there are people that buy direct. They, they invest by filling an application, sending in a check, and those shareholders uh, cannot hold their shares at a mutual fund transfer agent after the shares convert to an ETF. So one of the big issues the industry was facing was how do we get around that problem? And this was the number one issue people raised with me when I said we're going to do this conversion. And it took a little research, but we knew when we started the project that we were going to find an answer to that. And indeed we did. And, and the answer to that was a corporate transfer agent um, that could handle this. So, and we, we selected on a company called American Stock Transfer. So any of our shareholders that didn't uh, transfer their shares to a brokerage account prior to the conversion, their shares were moved over to American Stock Transfer. Um, so it sort of serves as a subtransfer agent for this. Um, anyway, that just gives you an idea. I can I can go into more detail if you want, but I feel like that's well. Well, yeah. Let, let me let me ask you a question on that sure. last point. So the the first two mutual funds that you converted uh, were the Guinness Atkinson Dividend Builder Fund and the Guinness Atkinson Asia Pacific Dividend Builder Fund. Were those funds selected because uh, there were more shareholders that that did not hold those shares 
direct. And so therefore, yeah. it helped make that conversion easier. And, and were there any other factors in selecting those two funds to convert? Uh, the, the smaller size and the limited number of direct shareholders was a consideration. But the, the real consideration for me was, I just think dividend investing is, its time has come. Um, and these two funds have great little long-term track records. And I just thought if we could give these two funds uh, a, a, a spotlight as ETFs and, and get people to understand that these two funds had longer-term track records that were excellent as ETFs, that they would be popular ETFs. So, so it was sort of a marketing uh, commercial decision, but, but you're right. Part of it was the fact that we had a limited number of shareholders uh, that were direct shareholders. And these conversions were non-taxable events for shareholders, correct? Correct, yeah. We, um, we started out with two fundamental bedrock principles, and if we couldn't meet either of these, we weren't going to do it. One was we had to be able to maintain a track record, and two, the, the, the conversions had to be taxable events, uh, non-taxable events for shareholders, uh, and we achieved both of those. So let, let me ask you this. What happens with any embedded capital gains in positions that were held by the mutual funds? Can those just be washed out in the uh, ETF creation <laughs> redemption process moving forward? How does that work? Well, they did come over. You're correct. They came over from the um, open-end funds. But, yes, you're correct. Um, the, and I don't know how much detail you want to get into here, but the, the tax efficiency that ETFs enjoy it relates entirely to the way the creation and redemption process occurs and the way shares are delivered out uh, when there's a redemption. And, yes, over time we can uh, have those uh, capital gains I don't want to say eliminated, uh, but but just sort of moved off, uh, in some cases, off the fund's books. This isn't the perfect, you know, mechanism. You know, ETFs do have to make capital gains distributions. Uh, they just tend to be significantly lower than open-end funds because of this mechanism. And, um, yeah, the, these funds will enjoy that. So if I could just restate that, I mean, if you have a low-cost basis position that came over and it was at a significant gain, theoretically, you could hand that over when ETF shares are, are redeemed, right, and then therefore minimize any future capital gain distributions. 100% correct. Okay. You, you, you've nailed it, yeah. I'm sorry, you explained it much better than I did. <laughs> uh, Jim, from, from the very beginning, uh, when this idea of converting mutual funds was just a glimmer in your eye, and you talked a little bit about this in terms of the time frame, but but how long did the entire process take, like like from idea inception to actual conversion? Two and a half, three years. And, and do you feel like moving forward, because, again, you blaze a trail here, that's going to be a much uh, quicker process for other fund companies who may decide it, to pursue yeah, this? It, it already has been. And um, uh, it took a long time for us to get clearance. And I think part of that was, and again, I'm, I'm speaking, you know, for myself, I don't know what's going on inside the Security Exchange Commission, but I think they wanted to make sure that the first conversion that happened uh, left a trail that they were very comfortable with. They wanted to make sure the disclosure was 100% correct in their minds. And so it did take longer to get the first one done. But we've already seen at least two other firms uh, have conversions, and we know there's more on the way. Yeah, and so now that you've paved the way here, again, I mean, I have seen several other mutual funds convert to ETFs. What do you expect to happen from here just at a, a broader level? I mean, do you think we're going to see an onslaught of conversions now across the space? Um, I do. Um, it's it's very hard for me to speak for the rest of the industry, but if you start with the premise that we did that ETFs are just a better investment vehicle than mutual funds, um, and shareholders prefer them, they're voting with their feet. Uh, if you're in the uh, mutual fund space, you recognize all this. I mean, none of this is is um, opaque. And 
I believe there will be. Uh, uh, it's going to take a while, be, but I believe there'll be a long process of conversions throughout the industry. I, if if you, you know, truth be told, if you ask me, I would say a decade from now, with some exceptions, most of the industry will have converted, uh, and there'll be very uh, much, significantly fewer assets in open end funds than there are today, and there'll be significantly more assets in ETF. That was Jim Atkinson, CEO of Guinness Atkinson. And I loved what he said at the beginning, that if we don't convert our mutual funds to ETFs, our shareholders are going to do that for us. They'll, they'll just go find a company offering ETFs. I thought that was extremely powerful. And then, of course, at the end, he said he expects most of the mutual fund industry to convert to ETFs over the next decade, which I can't argue with that. I think I agree. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Okay, so you know I can't do a best of ETF Prime without at least a little Bitcoin ETF discussion, which in fairness to me, this will likely be the ETF story of the year as judged by other people in the industry. But I was joined by ProShares, Simeon Hyman, literally like two hours after they launched the first Bitcoin Futures ETF, so we start there by talking about his schedule that morning and all of the media buzz around this ETF. And then we get into the journey ProShares has been on to get this thing to market. This was a lot of fun. Simeon, congratulations on the launch and thank you for joining me. Thanks so much. We're really proud to be out first and uh, very glad to have the, op have the opportunity to speak with you. Well, I have to ask you, how has the day been going so far? I understand that you were at the New York Stock Exchange this morning for the bell ringing. Well, what's the day been like so far? We're, we're having a lot of fun. I mean, there's obviously lots and lots of press and media attention. Um, and I think it's appropriate because this is uh, this is a bit of a game changer. It's uh, um, If you want to think about it, and it's, it's not unlike uh, the launch of the first gold ETF or the first bond ETF. And these are important advances in the... Um, in the ability for investors to uh, to conveniently get access to lots of different ways to uh, to support their investment objectives. What does your media schedule look like today? Are you just jam packed? Yeah, it's been full, uh, pretty much back to back <laughs> for eight or ten hours straight. So uh, ultimately, I'll take a break. But uh, I'm a fan of uh, several cups of coffee, and then my real vice is diet Mountain Dew. <laughs> I feel the same way. I've been just absolutely gassed over the past week following all this. I think, as you know, I've been tracking the Bitcoin ETF story for a long time and I'm having a lot of fun with it, but I'm tired. But of course, I'm speaking to somebody who's been working to actually bring the product to market. I'm curious, has anything ever come close to comparing to this media frenzy around a Bitcoin ETF since you've been at ProShares? This is a big one, but you know we do see innovation as really at the heart of what we do. So um, it, it's uh, it's part of our DNA to bring solutions that are distinct to differentiate to the market. But th this is a big one, absolutely. Okay, so you have actually been with ProShare since 2013. 
which incidentally, that was when the first Bitcoin ETF was filed by the Winklevoss twins. That was eight years ago. That was a physically backed product. And some people may not realize ProShares was actually pretty early here as well. You filed for a futures-based ETF back in December of 2017, which was right after the CFTC approved Bitcoin futures at uh, CBO and CME. I'd love to have you just talk about this journey here. When did ProShares first start contemplating a Bitcoin ETF? What was the feeling when the SEC rejected your first futures-based filing? What has the process been like over the past year? Just take us through the, uh, the history here. Uh, thank you for for observing that we we did indeed have that first filing in 2017. So, uh, you know, we're not we're not new to cryptocurrency. We've obviously been studying it for a long time, um, and uh, uh, it's been a lot of hard work. But the what we found was very consistent with the the public comments that you've heard from uh, the SEC. All of the positive things about the futures market that you may have seen in the in the press specifically from the SEC is certainly very consistent with what we see as you know part of the key value proposition here uh, th- this is not a second order alternative to uh, to other ways of getting Bitcoin we think this is a particularly high road uh, first of all you have the regulation in the futures market and on top of that, you have the regulation and the Securities Acts of 1940 on the ETF itself. So it's not just convenience, it's the robustness. In fact, there are a growing number of experts who've been writing quite publicly that um, the futures market is perhaps the better place for price discovery uh, than the spot market. Uh, the CME futures market that you referenced and that uh, you know forms the core of the, uh, that, that's where these futures trade, that market actually trades 40% more volume than the largest U.S. Bitcoin exchange. So um, this is, a, a, we think, a very powerful way to, uh, to gain exposure to Bitcoin. The comments that you referenced from the SEC, so SEC Chair Gary Gensler, he made these comments in early August that his staff would look forward to reviewing Bitcoin ETF filings that were under the Investment Company Act of 1940 and where the ETF held CME traded Bitcoin futures. I believe he made those comments on August 3rd. ProShares filed for the ETF on August 4th, if I'm not mistaken. So you were ready to go. I'm curious, were you just waiting for the right time? And then what do you think changed that ultimately got the SEC comfortable with a futures-based Bitcoin ETF? So I wear a lot of hats at ProShares. The SEC attorney guy is actually one of the hats that I don't wear. <laughs> so I, I actually, I, I don't have a, a lot of blow-by-blow color for you, but um, yeah, it, it's certainly fair to fair to note that innovation is so core to what we do. When you mentioned the 2017 filing, um, we've been watching this and, and you know, preparing and preparing and thinking about alternatives as the uh, the Bitcoin market matured, as the futures market matured, and as the evolution of the regulatory environment continued. How much do you think custody mattered here? That ETF issuers don't actually have to store and secure Bitcoin since you just hold futures contracts. Do you oh. think that was a factor in the SEC's decision making? It's all it's it's all part part appropriately part of that stew. You know the the fact that the uh, the CFTC is governing the futures market. There's a clearinghouse there. You know they're going to settle. This is really important stuff. Uh, I think people often underestimate the complexity of getting that spot exposure to Bitcoin because you know, there are multiple exchanges and they can vary several hundred basis points, you know, two, three, four, five percent among them. Uh, and uh, look, there are folks who just 
weren't ready to roll up their sleeves and, and figure out how to access an exchange and wallets and cold keys and warm keys. So I think all of that is is part of the value proposition uh, of futures and, and the fact that they you know are that regulated place where uh, the clearinghouse does uh, you know ensure the settlement is important. That was Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares. And yes, we do go on to talk about Contango and the structure of futures-based ETFs and all of that. So check out that entire conversation if you missed it. Okay, I want to close with a very brief clip from Armando Senra, head of iShares Americas at BlackRock, who joined me in August to deliver the annual ETF State of the Union. I like to do this every year on the podcast. And I I just love these comments around ETF growth and innovation. I thought a very fitting way to end a best of ETF prime. And I would say if these don't get you excited about the future of ETFs, I'm not sure what will. Um, so I think that the, the, the growth you're seeing this year is a continuation of a number of drivers, You know, whether it's a desire for transparency, for access to different markets uh, and investment vehicles, for tax efficiency, um, and, and you have more and more investors that are turning to ETFs as, as really the main, uh, the essential building block for portfolio construction. Uh, I think if you go back to the to the earlier days, um, you know those are those were some of the basic drivers. Then, of course, the transformation of the the business model uh, in um, in advice moving to fee base, and that also led to the growth in model portfolios which is a massive driver for ETF growth. Uh, and again, you know, I think that the old conversation or an active and index, that's all, that's a, an old conversation that is dead. Uh, ultimately, it's about ETFs and how they have become the essential tool for active investors to build portfolios. Uh, so it's no longer a conversation about active or index. Um, and the, the reason I mentioned we're still in the early days, when you look at the total size here in the U.S. of equity ETFs compared to U.S. equity assets, it's a little bit less than 10%. If you look at fixed income ETFs, which you remember last year experienced phenomenal growth, they're less than 2% of U.S. Um, of U.S. fixed income assets. So there's a tremendous amount of growth that is ahead of us. Um, I would say all the drivers that you've seen uh, in the last couple of years, you mentioned the record flows in 2020, the record flows this year, uh, the elimination of commissions back in 2019 really fueled the growth uh, of uh, ETFs, primarily in the RIA space, also with self-directed investors. We've seen the tremendous growth coming in sustainable um, ETFs, um, also fixed income ETFs. I think that we, we had a lot of growth already, but I think 2020, 2021, uh, are really uh, catalysts for um, for a lot of the growth that we've seen. And of course, I think that what is also happening is the innovation that continues to, to take place in the ETF world. Uh, in 2020, 2021, you've seen tremendous growth in thematic, thematic investing. I already mentioned fixed income ETFs, uh, the growth in sustainable. Uh, so those are new factors that continue to fuel the growth uh, for ETFs uh, around the world. It's interesting. You mentioned the iShares growth trajectory, and I mentioned this a few years or a few weeks ago on the podcast. So the first U.S. listed ETF launched in January of 1993, and it took until December 2010 for ETFs to hit one trillion in assets. But they then hit two trillion in December 2014, three trillion in July 2017. Four trillion in July 2019, five trillion in uh, November 2020. 
six trillion in, in April of this year, and of course uh, they're they're now knocking on the door of seven trillion here in the U.S. It's just uh, re- remarkable the acceleration here. And to your point, you, you know about it still being early. I mean, equity ETFs only represent what ten percent. Of, of U.S. equity assets, you know, bond yeah. ETFs, what, a little over 2%. There, there's a lot of runway here. There's a lot of runway. And, and again, you know, it, it goes back to what I just said. You know, you continue to see new areas of growth, thematic investing, uh, sustainable. Uh, you also begin to see uh, more in active, uh, primarily in thematic space. So active managers using the ETF as the, um, as the vehicle of choice. Uh, and that's because investors, are the, you know, ultimately it's all driven by client demand. Um, and, and clients like the, the, the efficiency of the ETF, the lower cost of the ETF, uh, the lighter transparency of the ETF. And those are all drivers that continue to fuel the industry. So that was Armando Senra, head of iShares Americas at BlackRock. And I should note, we did just hit $7 trillion in ETF assets. It's been another record-setting year. And I keep saying that I feel like the entire industry is actually accelerating. It's mushrooming now over 28 years after the launch of the first ETF. Pretty exciting. In any event, hope you enjoyed all of the conversations this week. I have a tremendous lineup of guests to close out the year. Hope you'll join me for those. And I already have an amazing lineup for the first quarter of 2022 as well. So again, thank you for listening. I'll be right back here next week with Brandon Clark, Director of ETF Business at Federated Hermes, who's going to explain their decision to enter the ETF market. And then Crane Shares' Luke Oliver will talk China ETFs and their very successful Global Carbon ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <music>